Perak of Echa, which um, we have in front of us on page uh, 12, and on back, uh, page 13. Page 12, as you can see, has a particular layout to it. Um, and, uh, and I'll explain the layout in a moment. I could not reproduce the layout in English. It would have just not, it wouldn't be enough room for it. Uh, but as I mentioned in the introductory shiur, Perak Gimel, uh, which is a unique Perak, not only in Echa, but in all of uh, Tanakh, is an alphabetic acrostic with three psukim per letter. And it maintains it with absolute fidelity. And the reason I mention that is because we have numerous acrostics in Tanakh where there's no pasuk for the vav, where there's no, you know, there's uh, extra psukim or there's half psukim. This maintains absolute fidelity, just like Aleph, Bet, and Dala do, with the same exception that we saw from Bet and Dal and, and Bet, and we'll see in Dalit again uh, in two weeks. Uh, that Pei and Ayin are reversed, and we've talked about why Pei and Ayin are reversed. Um, remember that Perak Aleph is an observer and the city sort of in dialogue. The observer, the Mekonein, <coughs> gives voice to the city, and the city, in a, in a, in a, in a poetic act of Ha'anasha, of, uh, of personalization, gives voice to its own lament, and its lament is... Uh, being isolated, being abandoned by its friends, its treaty allies, and um, and then the observer is presenting that sort of as a as a, narrate, as a narration. In the second parak, which again is a dialogue between the two, the city then rails in anger and confusion about the destruction, mainly focusing on the hunger, the starvation, the suffering of the children. Uh, there is a mention of the Mikdash uh, being destroyed, but it's, not, again, not the central focus anywhere in Echa uh, until we get to the end, and then it's even, even then it's not central. Before getting to the third parak, which we're going to do relatively quickly for Psukim, I have to ask the question, what is the goal of this entire Sefer? And it's one we're not really going to accomplish until we get in two more sessions after this, until we finish it, but... Um, this is the parak in which we discover a lot of what the book is about, and to put it a little bit differently, what the Mekonein, the Durger, which is Yirmiyahu, what he's trying to, trying to accomplish with this book. See, when you have a book of law, like Vayikra, it's very clear what it's trying to accomplish. God needs to communicate his laws to the people. He speaks to Moshe, tells Moshe, tell B'nai Israel this is the law, and that's the law. When we have a narrative, it's quite clear what the general motivation is, which is to tell a story. The people went from here, they went to there. Over there, they made this mistake, and they were punished, and this happened. Over there, they acted greatly, and they were rewarded this way, etc. And the purpose of the narrative usually is to provide some sort of a background to either law or divine direction. Prophecy is also clear, because a prophet is told by God, go to the people and tell them X, Y, and Z, and he tells them X, Y, and Z. And if X, Y, and Z are something that have import for general Jewish history uh, or critical periods, then it's something that's recorded, and those are the books of the Nevi'im. We even have a genre in Tanakh referred to as wisdom literature. Classic example is Mishle and Eov and Kohelet, and there's, of course, pieces in Tehillim and other parts of Tanakh that are observations about the world. What's a good way to behave? What happens to people who behave like this? How should you interact with a cheating kind of person? How should you interact with, a, uh, with an honest person, etc.? 
And that clearly has its purposes, and the, and the motivation is to share wisdom about life and to allow people to live better lives and more conscious lives. But what's the purpose of Echa? Echa fits none of those. Echa is not a book of prophecy. God is not saying to Yirmiyahu, go say these words. God is not saying to the city, speak. It's not law. It's not wisdom in the sense of observations about life. So it's therefore what we refer to as express, the genre of expressive literature. It's expressing particular feelings. But then you got to ask, well, what's the purpose of expressing those feelings? This is not group therapy. It's not touchy-feely. What's the purpose of expressing these feelings? And the third parak is going to be the key to unlocking that answer. We're not going to turn the key until we get to the fifth parak. But the key is the third parak. The third parak shifts dramatically in its perspective. Because the perspective of the first two parakim has been, the focal point is the city. The city has been personalized to be speaking about her pain, about her husband gone, about her children suffering. And then the observer speaks to the city and about the city. But there's no real people involved. The third parak suddenly is in the first person singular. An autobiographical parak. Ani hagever. So let's take a look at it. I myself have seen affliction. So is this now, or what are we? Are, are we now opening things up so that an individual who has gone through the des- destruction that's described in the first two parakim can now speak out personally and talk about his own experiences? Perhaps, but not so clear. <coughs> God has led me into the darkness. And he come with his hand against me. He's broken my flesh. Remember, these are descriptions that we heard in the second parak, mainly in the second parak, in a general way, about what God is doing to the people. Now it's me, it's all in the first person, and it's all singular. He is kind of built around me. He has sat me in the darkness like the dead, like living in a coffin. So he's kind of built a fence around me, not let me out. Even when I cry out, he has, he has shuddered my, my tefillah. He's, he's stopped it, he's stilted it. He's made my roads crooked. Now, what we get the description, these first nine psukim, as of somebody who is um, sort of paralyzed and unable to, to move at all, and it's God has done this to them. Now, remember, the, 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 the theological perspective of Perak Bed is that God has acted as an enemy, God has attacked me, God has aimed his arrows at me, and there is no theological fallback of saying, well, but I sinned and I deserved it, and Sido Kadin. It's not Sido Kadin in Perak Bed. So far, we don't hear that here yet uh, in this parak. God is a bear, a lion, waiting in, in amb- to ambush me. He has subverted my ways. This is something we had in Perak Bet also, but now it's in the singular. Again, he has aimed his arrows. He's kind of uh, <coughs> drawn the bow. And I become a target. I'm the target. 
Hevi bechiyotai b'nei ashpato. Now ashpot, uh, ashpot is a uh, is a uh, quiver. He's put he's put them at me. Haiti schok lechol amin neginatam kol ayom. Now who's the chol amin? And this is where suddenly a, a a light goes off when we hear that phrase. Because up until now we could say that the mekonein is continuing to do what he did in the first two prakim which is to give the city a voice, but now the voice has become a personalized voice, meaning uh, me instead of it. And now the individual is talking, but the individual is the city. But the minute that the individual says, I have become a laughing stock for all of my people, we realize this is really an individual who among his people has become the object of derision. And then we can turn around and understand exactly who we're talking about. So a little bit of history, which is critical to understanding this parak. In the year 605 BCE, the Babylonian kingdom led by this fellow Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Assyrians in Nineveh, conquered the eastern part of Mesopotamia, and started their march, which is everybody's march, which is to the west to aim towards Egypt. They ultimately got into Shalim in 597 BCE. It was a very quiet surrender. And they took the aristocracy and the artisans, the Harash, the Masger, and they left the Dalat Haaretz, the poor, to stay there. They left the Beit HaMikdash standing. They allowed the Kohanim to continue, etc. All was fine. And they, in, they instituted, and by the way, the king was taken away. Yechonyah, who had only been king for three months, was taken away. And in chains, but then he was kind of put into a club fed in Pavel and treated very nicely. And then they appointed an uncle of his, another son of Yoshiahu, who was Yechonyah's grandfather, uh, a fellow named Matanyah, and they changed his name to Tzidkiyahu and appointed him as king. He was a vassal. And Tzidkiyahu had a bunch of court prophets uh, during those years from 597 B.C. on, uh, who were advising him strongly to sign a treaty with Egypt. Egypt is going to be the great savior who is going to liberate us, and they're sending messages to the people who were in the exile that they should sit on their suitcases because they're coming home soon. There was one prophet there who had been prophesying since Yoshiahu's time, and that was a fellow named Yirmiyahu. And Yirmiyahu said that's absolutely not the case, and you guys are all Nevi'eh Sheker. He didn't say it in those words, but more or less. And... Uh, God has decreed that Bavel is indeed going to win, and if we accept Bavel as the ruler, things will be fine, but if we rebel against them, we're going to lose, and of course we know what happened. But along the way, and Yumiahu is by far the most autobiographical book of the Nevi'im. We have at least five different um, long scenarios in Yumiahu which, in which Yumiahu talks about himself and things that have happened to him. Uh, among the prophecies, including his being in the prison, including his buying the land from his cousin as a surety that when they come back to Israel, the land will be in the family, and demonstrating that we are going to return, um, uh, in, but including, of course, his being, his being harassed and persecuted uh, by the king and by the kingdom, and ultimately being dragged away to Egypt by the people who we said, God's prophecy is you should not go to Egypt. And they dragged him away and took him to Egypt. So he, being the laughingstock of the people, now this is your meow. He's beyond the bum rorim. He has, he has satiated me with bitterness. Hirvani la'ana, la'ana is a poisonous root. 
You can see that he is describing physical torment. It kind of reminds us of the last scene in the second chapter of Eov. I abandoned all goodness. I was, I was given up from, from any sort of peace. And I assumed that everything was lost. Everything was gone. And he continues on... Um, here, but here there is a a shift. Um, he now turns to his audience because there's no purpose in you now getting up and saying all of this just to fetch. It's not his purpose. Fetching is a time-honored Jewish custom, but not one that goes into Tanakh. His purpose is to inspire and to motivate. So now, watch how he speaks. Look at all of the pain that I've had. When I remember it, I'm, I'm like downtrodden. But then I think about it, and then I pray. So now what he's doing is turning his pain, which was at this point meaningless pain, into meaningful pain. And notice the dramatic shift. Up until now, everything was terrible, and he was cut off from God. And then he evokes a memory of what things had been like. And then he realizes, And of course, that's a passage that was adopted into Tefillah. Right? That Hashem's chesed is never stopped. Every morning we wake up, and your trust is great. This is, of course, where the um, late Middle Ages Modani was created from. And, and now, what he's doing is, he's sharing with his audience that he realizes connection to Hashem, and therefore he prays to Him. And notice how he has come half-circle from being in this terribly dark place, where, by the way, Yirmiyahu was. He was in a pit. He was in a dark pit, thrown there by the king, because of his prophecies that they didn't want to hear. So it's not a, a metaphoric dark place, it's a real dark place. <coughs> and feeling like he's all cut off to suddenly saying, but I remember that I have a connection with Hashem, I'm going to now think back to that and I'm going to now reflect. Reflecting on it is not the end of the story, and that's where we're not even halfway through. And notice that even within the letters, each letter kind of carries its own strand of thought, these three psukim. It, it doesn't, it's not perfect, and the nuns will see it cut off in the middle. God is good to those who, who anticipate him, to anyone who looks for him. And it's good, and now this sounds like wisdom literature, it's good to sit silently and wait for God's salvation. It's good to carry a burden when you're young, to go through that. You should sit silently alone. Now that's exactly what he did. He was sitting alone. But notice, when he's sitting alone, it's not sitting alone and giving up. It's sitting alone and reflecting, and then hoping that there is maybe, praying that there is some sort of a salvation. Parenthetically, this is the Christians love this pasuk, but he gives his cheek to the one who's striking him. I guess you would say turn the other cheek, kind of thing. 
right? And he 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 absorbs this shame of being slapped. That's not where it comes from. What? That's not where it comes from. New Testament. Yeah, but where do you think the New Testament got it from? Okay, is this where it's from? Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, but, like what? Yes, but the New yeah, Testament, remember, like many of the famous drashot are there, are Midrashim on, on, on Tanakh. Kiloi's God will not abandon us forever, me forever, one forever. He has done, he has done what he's done, the Hogad, the pain, but he's going to have Rachamim. So this isn't really what God wants to do. In other words, the perspective that God is at me because God is sort of sadistic and trying to hurt me and wants to hurt me, this isn't what it's about. And it's really all revolves around Rachamim, which is suddenly a new perspective that we've not heard yet in the Megillah. It's one we're very familiar with hearing in Drashot, etc., that it's all for the better, etc., but here we're hearing it straight up. And, but we're hearing it critically from somebody who has gone through it. Somebody who has himself gone through terrible pain, and everybody knows about that pain. And I want you to imagine how poignant this is for him to be standing up in, around the destroyed city of Yerushalayim after the, through two and a half years of siege, after children dying in their parents' arms, after parents, according to what we saw in the previous parak, cooking their own children and eating them out of such dire starvation. And Yumiyahu the whole time had been saying, we have to accept Bavel, and they all thought he was crazy, and they all went with, with Mitzrayim. So he doesn't get up and say, I told you so. But they all know what he went through. So he now becomes a personal lightning rod for the, for the collective pain. This is what I've gone through. He, he, this is God crushes under his feet. And people think that when there's misjust, lack of justice going on, that God doesn't see it. Who is this who thinks that God didn't command me? And they think that all this stuff that's happening is not coming from God. This is all he's, he's saying. This is what people are saying. And this is really where he wants to get to. When bad stuff happens, personally, communally, nationally, there are things that you can do on a pragmatic level. You go to the doctor, you go to APAC, you know, you write to congressman, there's things that we do. But at some point, the most constructive thing that we can do is to turn around and say, what am I supposed to do with this internally? And that's where he's going here. That's where he's going. And listen to him very carefully as he gives a command. And again, there's a pasuk we're familiar with. Let us together look into our behavior and investigate it. It's the first call to tshuva that we've heard. We've heard, We've heard, Yushalayim sinned. But we've never heard a call to tshuva yet. Because a call to tshuva is the only constructive thing that we can do at this point to say that since everything that's happened is ultimately because God wants for our good, and God is chastising us, so we have to look internally, see what we need to do, and change it. We'll lift up our hands in prayer to God. So, so what do we have to say to God? We sinned. We rebelled against you. And you didn't forgive us. 
Sakota ba'af atir defenu harag talochamalta. And now we go back to Perak Bet and describe all the terrible things that happened from a whole different perspective. Not a perspective of, I can't believe all this terrible stuff has happened. Why has this happened? But rather with a new premise, which is, we've sinned, we've rebelled against you, and for your reality to be saying this, you've got to remember there's also, there's a whole other layer of it, which is, you rebelled against God because you didn't listen to what I had to say, and I was the Navi of God. <coughs> By the way, it wasn't just the politics. It was Yirmiyahu about Abu Dazarah. It was Yirmiyahu critically, take a look at Yirmiyahu Lamed Dalad, about treatment of the poor, and specifically about subjugation of Jewish slaves for longer than the six years and holding on to them. Um, so, Sakota ve'anan lach me'avor tefillah. Now, this is, again, a trope we saw earlier, but now from a different perspective. You have put up a big cloud to not let tefillah come by. It's a, it's a metaphor, the image of God's clouds, like a cloudy sky. Just think about any day in June in L.A. until 11 o'clock in the morning. You can't see anything. But the idea is that that is a cover that's blocking tefillah ke'ilu. The Gemara tells us that Rava would not make a tanit sibur on a day that was very cloudy. Right? Because of this pasuk. It's like kind of God, like God's put up a block. You've turned us into a, re- a rejected thing among the nations. Was there some kind of primitive belief that a cloud interfered with connecting with... Well, I think it was symbolic. I think it was symbolic. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so. Certainly not within our circles. Yeah. There may have been. I don't think in our circles that we actually had anybody who actually believed that clouds got in the way. Right, so I think you can argue something else that if there's clouds, maybe that means <coughs> it's going to rain and we don't have to fast. Right. That so, be a different so thing. then why? Uh, but the but the, it was built on this metaphor, okay. and the metaphor is that that that, that when when God is not listening to us, feels that God is far away, mm-hmm. then we can then look at all sorts of things and use them as instructive models. I'll give you an example of this. Um, the uh, the very famous song of Moshe begins Listen, O heavens, listen, O earth. And of course, we don't believe that God, Moshe is actually talking to the sun and the moon and talking to the ground. He's talking to us. Nevim do this all the time. So the very famous Sifri, where Moshe turns to Bay Israel and says, Look, the sun doesn't get a reward for coming out, isn't punished if it doesn't come out, and yet every day it comes out like it's supposed to. That should be your model. Now, if you were to break that down, then you would say, well, that's ridiculous. The sun doesn't have choice. The sun doesn't have free will. The sun isn't a sentient being. The sun is just a piece of physics that's operating on a system that God built in. Great. But a person has to be very wise and wily when it comes to your Shemayim and use every possible subterfuge, if it is, to increase his own Yerat Shemayim. So, for purposes of that, we'll say, you know what, the sun could just go on strike, but it doesn't, because it's a loyal servant to God, so I should be a loyal servant to God. Now, once you break that down, of course, it all falls apart. So the trick is to not break it down and accept the Musr as it is. And the same way here, the cloud, of course, is only metaphoric. But then, once it's metaphoric, it then becomes a powerful symbol to try to kind of break through. Our enemies are speaking against us, opening their mouths. All of this fear and trembling that they put on us. I'm weeping because of my nation. Now this is another thing that's happening. Yirmiyahu is talking, we're going to see this in the fifth paragraph, Yirmiyahu is talking to a shell-shocked nation, a PTSD nation. 
that PTSD, um, um, that, that cannot cry yet. And so notice, he's starting to talk. I'm crying because of what's happened in the nation. He's trying to motivate them. We saw that last in the last session also. Kumi roni balayla, shifchi kamayim libech, pour out your heart. Um, I want to cry and not stop crying let's remember what we told the city and now he's talking about himself and it makes it more powerful one of the many challenges facing us in teaching the Shoah is the numbers You you just can't teach it so you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington and you know that room with the shoes you see this huge pile of shoes. That's one way of kind of giving you a sense of the numbers. But the numbers kind of get in the way because it just becomes too impossible to deal with. That's why individual stories are much more powerful. So I think one of the things that they do there at the museum when you come in is you get a passport uh, with one individual and sort of follow their trek and, and their life and the end of their life. So the same way that Yirmiyahu's call to the people to try to identify with the city didn't work, so now he's making it about an individual, about himself. Uh, and here's the hope. I'm going to keep crying until God looks down and, and, and sees. I'm, I'm, I'm weeping more than all of the other, of the city, and now he's including others. Tzod tzaduni katsipor avichinam my enemies have conquered me, have captured me. Some two vabor, and there's the bore, there's the pit he was thrown into. Chayai, vayadu, evenbi, they've thrown things at me, they've thrown rocks at me. Tzafumayim al roshi, amarti, nigzarti, I had water poured on me, I assumed that I was gone, that I was dead. So what happened? Karati shimcha adunai. What did I do? I called out to God. Mi bor tachtiot. From where? From a low sister. Kolin shamata. Now, you remember this pasuk? We use this before Tkiat Shofar. You heard my voice. Don't ignore it. Now, Yumiyahu is not crying out to God. He's telling people what he did when he was in the pit. This isn't the crying out. This is the narration of what happened to him when he was in the pit. He called out to God. And you told me not to fear. And you redeemed me. You saved me. In other words, the crying out at some point helped. By the way, Yirmiyahu did get pulled out of the pit. And he was somewhat restored. Somewhat. You saw the cruelty done, or the, the injustice done against me, and you corrected it. And you saw what all of my enemies were trying to... By the way, who are his enemies? <laughs> his enemies? His enemies are not the nations. They are people who maybe even in the audience... Or certainly, people who were in, the, in that audience. You heard all of their curses against me and everything that they were plotting against me. They were just talking about how they hurt me all day. You saw that when they sat and when they got up, this is the plan of Kumacha. That's all it was. It was just laughing at me. And you saw that and you took vengeance on it. So you, you paid them back. And now, he's turning it outside. Now I want you to turn their, them into the song, meaning the song of derision against them. 
Tirdof va'af be'af v'tashmidei mitachat shmei Adonai. So it's a call for vengeance against his enemies. Now, what has Yumiao done? He has worked on two layers at the same time. The actual personal autobiographical layer, and then his autobiography being the autobiography of the nation. So he said, I was there. I was in a dark place, which is where we're all out right now. I thought all was lost. And then I stopped and thought about my life. And I realized, the chastei Hashem kilotamnu. That's the realization that turns everything around. And I realized, I'm always in relationship with Hashem. And now what I need to do is to look inside and see why that relationship has been ruptured. Years ago, I remember, I was in a friend's house. His mother wasn't a religious woman at all. Had a little sticker on her, new, on her fridge. It said, if it seems that God is far away, guess who moved? Tif Musa. Very powerful idea. And that's what he said. Of course God is kind, but I've messed up. And I had to look into myself. And I had to realize that. And I did. And I called out to God, and he pulled me out. And what's he telling everybody around? Time for us all to do that. And he says in the middle, let's all reach out and feel out. Let's all look into our behavior. What is his job? What is he trying to accomplish? He's trying to stir the people. He's trying to wake the people. And the first thing he has to do is to get them to start crying. He, got, he tried that in the second parak. Evidently it didn't work. I was going to try to do it by making a personal story. But crying isn't enough. Because crying can be fetching. Crying has to be constructive. So crying and saying, where have I fallen off? And what do I have to fix? And that's the second piece of the puzzle. And that's where he wants to get everybody. Of course, we'll have to see in the next parak how successful he was. Now, it's entirely possible that Perak Aleph, Bet, and Dalad were composed first, and Perak Gimel was composed later as a last attempt to try to make this work. Perak you'll see, is from a later generation, and not Yirmiyahu. <coughs> but, in any case, the way that it's presented in the book, Perak Gimel sits smack in the middle. And it's exactly in the middle, because you have 22 psukim, 22 psukim, and Dalad and Hay, 22 psukim, 22 psukim, and right in the middle, 66 psukim. And this is the three Aleph bets. And again, this is a parak that is unmatched anywhere in Tanakh. You have, of course, the famous eight Aleph bets in Tilim Kufiotet. Right? But this is, uh, has a whole complexity to it and a depth to it that, of course, is, is unmatched anywhere in, in, in this kind of an acrostic scheme. If you take a look at the other page, page 14, that has a structure on it, you can see that the first half of this, which is 24 Pesukim, um, is um, is his, his his own mourning about the Chorban, and then from there he goes to his own mourning for his own his description of his own personal pain that he's gone through. That last half, which is matches twenty five psukim, almost exactly the same amount, is how the he wants the people to respond, and um, and ultimately the the tefillah that starts with tzod uh, saduni and having the people daven. And in the middle is this theological statement about God's everlasting kindness and about uh, the way that we need to, to, um, to turn ourselves into tshuva. And it's all kind of mapped out here, as you could see it. Now, this is an attempt, and we do not know how successful the attempt was and whether or not it got the people actually to turn in, in tshuva. The reasonable assumption is that it was probably a mixed reaction. There were probably some who did and some who don't, who didn't. But Yirmiyahu's attempt in this entire Sefer 
is to try to evoke emotion among the people. The first emotion being to get out of the paralysis and to cry. The second is to become somewhat theologically attuned and instead of crying as complaint, to cry as weeping of sorrow and awareness of their own failings that led to this. And then ultimately, the whole, the whole purpose of this is tshuva, to try to right the relationship again. So we'll meet in two weeks, and we'll take up Eric Dalad. And we'll go from there.